I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a London Review of Books podcast. On the afternoon of Saturday, April 4, 2011, Giuliano Merchamis walked out of the Freedom Theatre in the Janine refugee camp and got into his old red Citroën. It was four o'clock, the sun was hot, and the street crowded. He put his baby son Jay on his lap, placing the boy's fingers on the steering wheel. The babysitter sat next to them. As he set off, a man in a balaclava came out of an alleyway and told him to stop. He had a gun. The babysitter told Giuliano to keep driving, but he stopped. The gunman shot him five times, then walked back down the alley. He left his mask in the street. Jay survived. The babysitter escaped with minor injuries. When Israeli soldiers arrived less than 30 minutes later, Giuliano was dead. They took his body to Israel, along with his car, computer, wallet, and other effects. Giuliano was the founder of the Freedom Theater. He was an Israeli citizen, the son of a Jewish mother, and therefore a Jew in the eyes of the Jewish state. But his father was a Palestinian from Nazareth, and Giuliano was a passionate believer in the Palestinian cause. He would often say he was 100% Palestinian and 100% Jewish. But in Israel, he was seldom allowed to forget that he was the son of an Arab, and in Janine, he was seen as an Israeli, a Jew, no matter how much he did for the camp. Among the artists and intellectuals of Ramallah, however, he was admired for having left Israel to work in one of the toughest parts of the West Bank, and was accepted as an ally. Since its founding in 2006, the Freedom Theater had been under constant fire. Local conservatives saw it as a corrupting influence, even a Zionist conspiracy. The Palestinian Authority resented what Giuliano said about its quote-unquote cooperation with Israel, and Israel saw him as a troublemaker, if not a traitor. Shortly after the murder, Mahmoud Abbas declared Giuliano a shahid, But though he may have given his life to the Palestinian cause, he was not killed by an Israeli bullet. The man who shot him was Palestinian, and probably from the camp. No one else would have known how to navigate those streets, or how to disappear so quickly. The killing appeared to be a message from forces inside the camp. Giuliano had spoken bluntly about the stifling effects of patriarchy, gender oppression, and religious dogma. Freedom, he argued, began with individual liberation, and without it, freedom from occupation would mean nothing. This did not endear him to defenders of quote-unquote tradition, nor did the theater's productions in which teenage boys and girls appeared on stage together. But risk was part of what inspired Giuliano. In a 2008 interview, he joked that he would be killed by a quote, fucked-up Palestinian for quote, corrupting the youth of Islam. 
The interview was posted on YouTube shortly after his murder. The silence from the camp seemed to confirm the hypothesis. Few people beyond those involved with the theater mourned Giuliano, and no one came forward to identify the killer. For Israel's radical left, the murder was a devastating blow. Handsome and charismatic, Giuliano was a symbol of the binational dream, a walking advertisement for solidarity and coexistence. For Palestinian artists and intellectuals, his murder was a, quote, hammer in the head, as George Ibrahim, head of the Kasaba Theater in Ramallah, put it. But right-wing commentators in Israel were delighted that a pro-Palestinian celebrity had been killed by a Palestinian. Quote, He lived among snakes, and one of them killed him with its bites, Yehuda Dror wrote. Quote, he proves to us once more that there is no one to talk to. When I visited Janine two months after the murder, almost everyone agreed that Giuliano had angered many people in the camp, in spite of his efforts to win them over to his program of, quote, cultural resistance, as he called it. No one was going to the theater, and the six members of his graduating class had left Janine for Ramallah. The actor Nabil Al-Ray, the theater's artistic director, and his wife, Michaela Miranda, an actress from Portugal, were working out of the house they shared with Giuliano and his family. They weren't sure when they would return to the theater, or whether it would survive. Nawal Stati, an old friend of Giuliano's, wouldn't get out of the car when she drove me to the theater. I blame the camp, she said, bursting into tears. They know who killed Giuliano, and they aren't saying. Two years after his murder, the theater Giuliano created still stands in a converted stone house rented from the UN. But until the murder is solved, Al Ray told me, quote, we remain under threat. The question is, from whom? Al Ray no longer believes that Giuliano was killed for challenging the ways of the camp. He thinks the killer was a hired hand, acting on behalf of more powerful forces inside the PA and Israel. At the theater, Giuliano was seen as a political leader, not just a director. Therefore, his killing must have been an assassination. But elsewhere, one hears other theories, mostly to do with money, corruption, and factional struggles. These theories have taken on a life of their own. The idea that Giuliano was killed for introducing transgressive Western ideas about personal liberty to a community that adheres to a conservative form of Islam is no longer popular, except among Israeli Jews for whom it confirms old prejudices. As people in Janine will tell you, violence against solidarity activists, even if they are Israeli, is almost unheard of in Palestine. That's what made the killing so unsettling. It's possible, of course, that Giuliano's murder had little to do with his work and more to do with the man himself. The most important question may not be who killed him, but why his killer, or killers, believed they could eliminate him with impunity. Whoever killed him knew that no one in the camp would rush to his defense. Giuliano loved the camp, no one doubts that, but he seemed to forget that he was a guest there, and that the more deeply he penetrated the life of the camp, the more cautiously he had to tread. Giuliano was the son of one of Janine's most famous guests, Arna Mare, and many people will always remember him as her son. Arna Mare's work with children in the camp had made her a legendary figure. Born in 1929, she came from the Zionist aristocracy. Her father, Gideon Mare, 
briefly directed Israel's Ministry of Health in the mid-1950s. At 18, she joined the Palmach, the Jewish fighting brigades, and drove a jeep during the 1948 Arab-Israeli War. It was thrilling, she told Giuliano in the documentary he made about her, Arna's children, to be a young woman, quote, driving people from place to place, and nobody could stop you. She would remain a Palmachnik, tough-talking, sometimes arrogant, always brutally direct, and she passed on the style to Giuliano. The kafia she wore in Janine, which Palestinians assumed to be an expression of solidarity, was a homage to her days in the Palmach, when Zionists adopted the look of the Felayin whose lands they coveted. Arna became disillusioned with Zionism after taking part in an operation to drive the Bedouin out of southern Palestine. Shortly after the war, she joined the Communist Party. She met Saliba Hamis, an intellectual from a Greek Orthodox family, at a party conference. Hamis was an emerging leader in quote-unquote Red Nazareth, where the party was attracting support for protesting against Israel's harsh military government. Arna and Saliba married in 1953. To be in a mixed marriage was to be a good communist. It expressed opposition to Zionism and honored the principles of internationalism. Outside the party, and particularly among Jews, a mixed marriage was a source of unspeakable shame. Arna's father saw it as an act of rebellion that even he, a socialist, could not countenance. She was welcomed into the Hamis family and shunned by her own. Giuliano, born in 1958, was the second of their three sons and grew up in Nazareth and Haifa. It was a political household. Saliba wrote pieces in the party newspaper, Al-Itihad, about the rise of anti-colonial liberation movements. Arna had been a teacher but was fired for marrying an Arab and spearheaded a popular campaign against the military government. The marriage was difficult. Arna was at heart an anarchist, Saliba a party man who was growing embittered at being denied a seat in the Politburo. They disagreed fiercely about how to raise their sons. Saliba wanted them to be clean-cut young communists and was furious when Arna allowed them to grow their hair long. Quote, Giuliano grew up with a paradox, Osnat Trebelsi, the producer of Arna's children, told me. Outside, the oppressor was the Jew, but at home, the oppressor was Arab. Giuliano later said he first learned about politics at, quote, the end of my father's belt. When Giuliano was 10, Saliba moved out. Giuliano attended Jewish schools in Haifa and saw himself as a Jew. He even stopped speaking Arabic for a time. At the age of 18, he joined the paratroopers. Saliba and Arna were horrified. Giuliano was now a soldier in the occupation they had both devoted their lives to fighting. He was stationed in Janine. Janine has had a reputation for defiance since the Ottoman era, when residents refused to pay taxes to the sultan. Seized from Jordan on the first day of the 1967 war, it soon became a center of resistance to the Israeli occupation. The camp, which was set up in the early 1950s as a temporary shelter for refugees from Haifa and the neighboring villages, was known to be especially militant. By the time Giuliano was stationed there, it had evolved into a concrete slum where more than 10,000 people were squeezed into a space not much bigger than 500 square meters. If a soldier killed an old woman or a child by accident, a weapon would be planted on the corpse. Giuliano's job was to carry the bag with the weapons. 
One night they were trying out new shoulder-fired missiles. They shot at a donkey, but instead killed the 12-year-old girl who was sitting on it. Explosives from the black bag were laid on top of the donkey. It wasn't long before he cracked. At a checkpoint in Janine, his commanding officer asked him to search an elderly Palestinian man. Later he would claim that the man was a cousin, though he had never seen him before. No one disputes what happened next. Giuliano refused his orders, punched his commanding officer, and spent several months in prison. He would have been there longer had Arnon not called Isser Harrell, her cousin and the first head of the Mossad, and implored him to get her son released. He recovered in a mental hospital. His life as an Israeli Jew was over. He now flirted with the idea of joining the PLO. He still wanted to be a soldier, whatever side he was on, but he was no good at following orders. Instead, he enrolled at the Beit Zvi School for the Performing Arts in Tel Aviv. There he could be an Arab or a Jew, or neither. In 1985, Giuliano Mer, he dropped Hamis from his name, starred in Amos Gutmann's film Bar 51, a tale of obsessive love between a brother and a sister set in Tel Aviv's hedonistic underground. He seemed poised to become a star of Israel's emerging independent cinema. Giuliano had the material of great actors, Amos Gitai, who cast him in seven films, told me. But he was looking for something more intense. In 1987, he went to the Philippines, where he spent a year mostly high on mushrooms. He lived in a tent, talked to monkeys, and declared himself the son of God. His parents had him rescued. But he felt that something important had happened to him under the influence of the mushrooms. I lost all my identities. As an actor, this was no bad thing. I have a gift. You are not only consciously unnationalized, you are inside yourself divided. Use it. He took the idea to the streets. In downtown Tel Aviv, he would remove his clothes, cover himself in fake blood or olive oil or paint, and denounce Israel's response to the first intifada, which had just broken out. His performances in Palestinian refugee camps were physically more demure, but scarcely less provocative. Quote, they think that if you replace the Israeli occupation with the Arafat occupation, it's going to be better, he said, and I say no, fight both of them. He was sleeping on the beach, eating nothing but olives, labne, and garlic. He was saved by two women. The first was Mishmish Or, who found him one night in a bar wearing only his underwear. She was an Israeli Jew in her mid-twenties, the daughter of a Turkish father and an Egyptian mother, a costume designer and the mother of a two-year-old daughter, Keshet. She took him home that night. He moved in and became a stepfather to Keshet. The second was his mother, who asked him to help out with her new project. When the Israeli army shut down Palestinian schools after the outbreak of the Intifada, Arna went to Janine. I have not come here for philanthropic reasons, she said, or to show that there are nice Jews who help Arabs. I came to struggle against the Israeli occupation. Working closely with Nawal Stati and Samira Zubedi, both of them married to Fatah militants who were in and out of prison, Arna established an alternative education system called Care and Learning. She brought toys to people's homes and distributed resist banned resistance pamphlets. Israeli, Jewish, a former member of the Palmach and an atheist, everything about Arna was wrong in Janine, but parents of Janine's children loved her. 
More than 1,500 students from the camp attended her children's centers, most of which were run out of people's homes. Arna, an accomplished sculptor, believed art could provide the children with a means of expressing their feelings about the occupation. She invited Giuliano to teach drama therapy. And when she received the so-called Alternative Nobel, the Wright Livelihood Prize in Sweden, she built a theater with the proceeds. In 1993, the Stone Theater, named after the stones children threw at Israeli tanks, was established on the top floor of Samiri Zubedi's home. Giuliano was there constantly, directing rehearsals and filming his mother and the children for what became Arna's children. The Stone Theater reunited the family. Saliba and Giuliano's brothers came to performances, and Giuliano began to call himself Mer Hamis again. At first, his students looked at him wearily. They worried he might be a, quote, spy for the occupation, as one of them told him. But he formed lasting friendships, among them with Samira Zubedi's son, Zachariah, who would later become a leader of the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade, a militia of young men affiliated with Fatah and a co-founder of the Freedom Theater. Arna died of cancer in 1995, a few months after Saliba Hamis, no cemetery would bury her. She was now a traitor for her activities in Janine. Giuliano held a press conference at her home in Haifa. He said he would bury her in her garden if nowhere else would have her. Finally, Ramot Menashe, a left Zionist kibbutz in the hills of the Carmel, offered to take her. Giuliano didn't set foot in Janine for another seven years. He returned to his old life and made a name for himself as a daringly physical performer in Tel Aviv's Habima Theater. He played the gay prisoner in Kiss of the Spider Woman. He performed in Arthur Miller's A View from the Bridge and Tony Kushner's Angels in America. As Othello, he nearly strangled the actress playing Desdemona. An ambulance had to be called in to res resuscitate her. He often got into brawls with directors, actors, even members of the audience. But he was also settling down. In 2000, Orr gave birth to their daughter, Milai. Along with Keshet, they moved into Arna's old house in Haifa. But soon after the Second Intifada erupted in October 2000, Giuliano turned their house into a base for organizing. This Intifada, unlike the first, was armed, and Janine was leading the way. Over the next three years, militants inside the camp, the capital of terror according to Israeli tabloids, sent an estimated 30 suicide bombers to Israel. In October 2001, Two of Giuliano's former students, Yusef Suetat and Nidal al-Jabali, carried out an attack. Two weeks earlier, Suetat had rescued a girl from her classroom where an Israeli shell had exploded. She died as he was carrying her to hospital. Vowing to avenge her death, he and al-Jabali offered their services to Islamic Jihad. They drove a stolen jeep to a bus station in Hadera and opened fire. Four women were killed before the police killed Suetat and Al-Jabali. Suetat had been one of Giuliano's favorite students. When he heard what had happened, Giuliano decided to return to Janine with his camera and complete the film about his mother. His first trip back was in May 2002. A month earlier, on 2 April, more than a hundred soldiers had surrounded the camp and declared it a closed military zone. As the soldiers approached, Zachariah Zubedi, speaking in Hebrew through a loudspeaker, warned them not to enter. The fighting went on for two weeks. 
the army demolished parts of the camp with armored bulldozers supported by tanks. In the end, the camp lay in ruins. When Giuliano arrived with two generators, there had been no electricity for more than a month. His host was his former student, Allah Sabah. They had first met ten years earlier, when Sabah was twelve years old and sitting in the rubble of his home after the army demolished it. Now Sabah was the leader of the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade in Jenin, and Zachariah Zubedi was his deputy. Zubedi's mother, Samira, had been killed a month before the battle began. She was sitting on her porch when an Israeli sniper, possibly mistaking her for her son Taha, shot her. Taha was killed a few hours later. The stone theater, on the top floor of Samira's home, was demolished. By night, Giuliano accompanied Sabah and Zubedi on patrols, ate with them, and slept in their hideouts. He spent seven months with men who were on Israel's hit list. Sabah was killed by a helicopter gunship in November 2002. Zubedi, who replaced him at the head of the Al-Aqsa brigades, soon became known in Israel as the Black Rat for his skill in dodging the army's attempts to kill him. In spite of his easy rapport with people in the camp, Giuliano remained suspect as an Israeli citizen, even among the fighters who were his friends. They trusted him and didn't trust him, Orr told me. It was exciting for him. Arna's Children was released internationally in 2004. It is a raw and upsetting film, above all, a son's elegy for his mother. We first see Arna at a checkpoint protesting against the closure of Janine. She expresses her anger at the occupation, and her belief that music and theater can show her students a way out of the occupation. In fact, she is raising the next intifada's martyrs. Ashraf, Yusuf, Nidal, Allah, and Zachariah will all become fighters. Only Zachariah will survive. Their decision to fight, as shown in the film, is as inevitable as it is tragic. They are patriots defending their homes, not Islamic zealots. Their cause, it suggests, is no different from Arna's. The film is not an inspirational tale, but a portrait of failure. You see the weakness of nonviolent resistance in the face of a violent occupation. The film turned Giuliano into a celebrity on the radical left, but he was having a hard time getting work on the Hebrew stage, partly because of his politics, but also because of his reputation for destructive behavior. One night he walked off the stage of the Habima Theater and punched a man who called him a traitor. He had never been more famous or less employable. He needed a break. He took his four-year-old daughter to India on a motorcycle trip. Millet sat in the basket he'd made for her. Four months into the trip, Orr joined them for another two months. But when they returned, Orr moved back to Tel Aviv with Millet, and Giuliano stayed in Haifa. Again, he began to spin his wheels. Lihi Hanach, his cousin, encouraged him to leave Israel, maybe moved to New York, where he'd won the prize for Best Documentary at the Tribeca Film Festival. Instead, he went back to Jenin. Arna's children had been a success in the Jenin camp, where people had never seen themselves on film, much less depicted as freedom fighters. Giuliano showed the film in a football stadium before an audience of more than 3,000. Every time one of the Shahids, the martyrs, appeared on screen, the audience roared, and members of the Al-Aqsa brigades fired their guns into the air. You're shooting for nothing, Amir Ahas, the legendary Haaretz correspondent based in Ramallah, complained to Zubedi. How much does each of those bullets cost? The camp's resistance to the army during the invasion had been heroic, Haas told me. Quote, 
But at the same time, men like Zachariah were living out a fantasy of armed struggle where the very use of explosives, whether bullets fired in the air or human bombs exploded in buses, was glorified without thought for their long-term effects. Arna's children, she worried, quote, might bolster the cult that Zubedi and his friends were building around themselves. But it had its practical uses. It raised morale and enabled young fighters to win positions in the Palestinian Authority, among them Zubedi, who would soon collect a salary from the Ministry of Prisoner Affairs. It also helped to make them stars inside the camp, Zubedi most of all. Zubedi first came to prominence in Israel a year before the release of Arna's children, when he gave an interview to Haaretz. It was the beginning of a strange romance between the Israeli press and, quote, Israel's number one wanted man in the area, alleged to be responsible for the deaths of at least six Israeli civilians. Zubedi relished the spotlight and made himself available to reporters. He was a loose cannon who admitted he was no good at following orders. He spoke warmly of Arafat, but otherwise expressed contempt for the PA, Mahmoud Abbas in particular. Quote, Abu Mazen doesn't even control his pants, he said. Still, he had no compunction about drawing a PA salary. Like many of his fellow militants, he had become dependent on an organization whose existence he saw as humiliating to national aspirations. He was comfortable among Israelis and said his struggle was with the occupation, not with Jews. He spoke choppy but fluent Hebrew, which he'd learned in prison. He had an easy smile, a boyish charm. Born in 1976, Zubedi came from a family of militants. His father had been an English teacher, but was banned from teaching because of his membership of Fatah. He worked in an iron foundry while Samira worked with Arna Mayer. Zubedi went to the children's centers and acted in stone theater productions, but school never held much interest for him. He spent his adolescence in street battles with Israeli soldiers and in prison, where he joined Fatah. When the Oslo Agreements were signed in 1993, he joined the PA police but quit after a year. Under the name Jewel Darawash, he made a living in Israel as a contractor. When his cover was blown and he was deported, he turned to stealing cars in Israel and selling them in Janine until he discovered a new talent, making explosives. Once, a bomb blew up while he was making it, leaving his face dark and pockmarked. Sleeping in temporary hideouts never far from his pistol, Zubedi was always a step ahead of the Israelis. At least 14 Palestinians were killed in Israeli operations against him. His ability to outwit his pursuers made him a local hero. By the time Giuliano came to the camp to show Arna's children, he was the most powerful man there. Not long after the premiere, Giuliano and Zubedi started talking about relaunching Arna's project. It was their acquaintance Jonathan Stanzik, the son of a Polish-Jewish father and an Israeli mother brought up in Stockholm, who drew up the plans for the Freedom Theater. The three of them opened it in February 2006. They knew that the camp was a quixotic location. Most people there had never even seen a play performed, but that made it all the more exciting. Giuliano would be the artistic director, Stanzik the general manager, while Zubedi would protect the theater from anyone who threatened it. Zubedi's support was indispensable. Giuliano and Stanzik, both outsiders, both Jews, could never have worked in the camp without his blessing and the legitimacy he conferred. But Zubedi was a wanted man, and in no position to defend the theater from Israel's threats. That was Giuliano's job. 
He disarmed soldiers by addressing them in Hebrew. Some recognized him from the movies. Stanzik, who had made 50,000 pounds playing the Stockholm real estate market, supplied the startup capital. The rest came from screenings of Arna's children. Most of the original employees were volunteers. Stanzik refused a salary. Giuliano and his partners rented a building and put up photographs of Che, Darwish, the novelist Gassan Kanafani, and Arna Mare in her kafia. For the first few months, they slept on mattresses in the same room. Giuliano hardly left the camp. Orr refused to join him in Janine. In May 2006, at his 48th birthday party, Giuliano met Jenny Nyman, a young Finnish woman, neither Jewish nor Arab, who shared his commitment to Palestine and had skills as a fundraiser. She started working at the Freedom Theater and soon moved in with him. They married a year later, though Giuliano, who was opposed to marriage, insisted that he'd agreed to it only for her visa. She's collecting money in Europe, he told a friend. She's doing a good job, and you know that I can't sleep alone. Nyman knew that Giuliano was still close to Orr. Orr says she agreed to share him. I understood that you couldn't be a man alone in the camp. Giuliano was startled by the changes in the camp since his mother's day. The physical damage had been repaired, but most children showed signs of post-traumatic stress disorder. Thanks to Israel's closures, Janine was more isolated than ever. Thanks to the rise in Islamic piety, it was more internally repressive. The inhabitants now suffered from two occupations, Israel's, and what Giuliano called a, quote, cultural religious occupation opposed from within. Giuliano wanted to fight both of them, but in order to fight the second, he needed to win people's trust, and the camp was inevitably suspicious of outsiders, especially those who made an issue of their good intentions. It was also swarming with informers. Even Zubedi's sponsorship could turn out to be a mixed blessing. It marked the theater as a Fatah project at a moment of intensifying Fatah-Hamas rivalry. Giuliano worked hard to woo the camp and to remain somehow above the fray. Using his privileges as an Israeli citizen, he turned himself into a one-man relief organization. He brought food and medicine to people's homes. He drove pregnant women through checkpoints to hospitals in Israel and children who had never seen the sea to the beaches of Haifa. If someone tried to shake him down for cash, he would give them a small job. In deference to the camp's ways, he never drank outside his house and threw away his empty whiskey bottles in Haifa. When women from outside the camp came to work in the theater, he insisted they wear long sleeves. He lived very simply and refused to install an air conditioner in his house. He went to great lengths to prove that he was not beholden to Fatah in spite of his alliance with Zubedi. The idea that even under occupation, Palestinians could improve their situation was central to Giuliano's pitch. Quote, Israel is destroying the neurological system of the society, he said, which is culture, identity, communication. But if you're going to keep blaming the occupation for all the problems of the Palestinians, you're going to end up in the same situation we're in today. He was careful not to denounce the armed resistance. That would have been heresy in the camp. But the next intifada, he declared, will be cultural. Perhaps art could succeed where violence had failed. We have to stand up again on our feet, he said. We are now living on our knees. The we was new. More and more, Giuliano spoke of himself as a Palestinian. The story of how he came to Palestine became an inspiring conversion narrative. 
He never hid his history, the things that might make people uncomfortable, Khulud Badawi, a friend in Haifa, told me. He spoke of being a killer in the paratroopers, of his mother's work at the Stone Theater, of the political awakening that led him back to Jenin. When I left Haifa, he said, I left Israel, I left my work, I left my society, I left my friends, I live here. But Giuliano never really left Israel or his friends there. At the weekend, he was often in Haifa or in Tel Aviv. The story he told about his break with Israel was, quote, mainly an instrumental declaration, Ruhama Marton, the founder of Physicians for Human Rights, told me. Quote, he had to say this to work in Janine. In the same week, I would see Giuliano one day in Tel Aviv and another in Janine. Was he a different person? Sure, he spoke Arabic there and Hebrew here. It's not that he was lying. It was true and not true at the same time. The performance went over well enough. Giuliano was the son of a local saint, and he pledged to continue her work. But he had larger ambitions than his mother. He wanted to transform the camp, not just to serve it. His ultimate aim was to train a group of professional actors to stage productions that would be both artistically serious and politically provocative, and to create an independent media center for Palestinians in the West Bank and in Israel. Janine was a base of operations, not a final destination. He found his students by wandering through the camp, introducing himself to people and describing his vision. Some of the actors he attracted had been fighters, others were thieves, hard cases, just as he had been. Of his first six students, five were from Janine, two were girls, and all faced ferocious opposition from people in their communities, for some of whom the theater might as well have been a brothel. It was a shameful place where boys and girls mixed, a place, as one visitor remarked to me, that, quote, smelled of sex. Outsiders called the student actresses whores. One father threatened to disown his daughter. For the boys, it wasn't much easier. Giuliano was a tough teacher. But he was also careful to build up his students' confidence. He told them they would be stars, and he paid them the ultimate compliment in Janine. You're not actors, he said. You are freedom fighters. But these freedom fighters couldn't perform without the cover of Zubedi and his friends in the Al-Aqsa Brigades. Giuliano was proud of his closeness to Zubedi and the resistance. He could hardly object if its luster rubbed off on the theater. It was a major attraction for volunteers from Europe and America who descended on the theater as if it were a revolutionary base. But Giuliano was trading on his relationship to the resistance while promoting a nonviolent alternative. Giuliano understood that the methods of the Second Intifada had been a complete failure for the Palestinian cause, Nyman says. Even though he never spoke against the armed struggle, at the same time, he said, look what's happened to you. Isn't it time to take a break and build up the society again? He wanted Zachariah to be a part of this. Zachariah was a big reason Giuliano went back to Janine, and he saw the theater as a way of saving him. The young people who came to study in the theater were looking for a form of resistance that would allow them to live rather than die as martyrs. This went against the grain in Janine. Quote, to be wanted by the army, to be a hero, was everyone's dream, a student called Faisal Abu Alheja told me. But when I went to the theater, I said, this is a dangerous idea. It means we want to die. How can we have freedom if we die? In the theater, he could, quote, Think without Fatah, without Hamas, without Islamic Jihad. Giuliano forged strong relationships with young men whose fathers had been killed or spent long periods in prison. 
Mustafa Steti, the son of Nawal Steti, who worked with Arna Meir, was one of them. His father, Mohammed, a Fatah activist, had been in prison for much of his son's childhood. Under torture and other forms of physical duress, he lost much of his sight. He found God and defected from Fatah to Hamas. After his release in 1995, he beat his children and tried to get his daughters to cover themselves. Mustafa drifted away from his family and dabbled in radical Islam. He thought of becoming a fighter like his father, he told me. He was looking for, quote, a way to get killed and just finish the story. It was then that Giuliano re-entered his life and promised his mother that he would look after her son. He took Mustafa to the theater, gave him a video camera, and introduced him to filmmaking. Giuliano took me under his wing, and I put down everything. My life became Giuliano. He knew how we felt. He knew how to communicate with us, and he found an energy in the camp that he didn't find elsewhere. It was at night, he said, drinking whiskey with Giuliano, that he learned the most. Giuliano and Zubedi shared a house, first in the camp, later in the city, where a number of staff members also rented rooms. There, members of the acting troupe and other friends of the theater were introduced to the pleasures of alcohol and hash and met radical Israelis and foreigners. They were getting their first glimpse of a world beyond Janine. It was a world Israel prevented them from entering, and the local enforcers of the cultural occupation didn't want them to see it either. Though the parties took place behind closed doors, rumors began to ripple through the camp. Girls and boys dancing on stage, fighters putting down their weapons to become actors, and now parties with drugs and sex. To some, it looked as though Giuliano had come to foment a youth revolt. It was all part of an Israeli plan to weaken the resistance. One former Fatah activist told me he first understood this when he heard that children at the theater were being taught about the Holocaust. First the Israelis destroyed the camp, then they gave us the theater. The charge that the theater was a foreign project was hard to rebut. Although the administrative staff was largely from Janine, most of the people running it were foreigners, and both Giuliano and Stanzik were Israeli citizens. The theater's stance was unusually radical for an NGO in Palestine. It refused to criticize the armed struggle or to parrot the PA's rhetoric about the peace process, positions that lost it some potential funding. It attacked the PA's collaboration with Israel and described itself as part of a struggle against occupation rather than another capacity-building organization. Yet the Freedom Theater depended as much as other NGOs on foreign money and on the goodwill of its many guests from abroad. It had radical cachet because it was located in the camp, but its real roots lay elsewhere. Giuliano conceived of the theater as a kind of revolutionary training base for soldiers in the quote-unquote cultural intifada, but it looked more like a bohemian oasis in the midst of the camp's miseries. Giuliano was convinced that once people saw the results of his work, they would embrace it. His charisma worked wonders when he went abroad to raise money. His most ardent supporters were a group of aging New York radicals led by Constancia Romilly, the daughter of Jessica Mitford and the ex-wife of the civil rights leader James Foreman, and Dorothy Zellner, a veteran of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Friends from the civil rights era and both red diaper babies, Romilly and Zellner met Giuliano in 2006 at a screening of Arna's children at NYU. The two women set up the Friends of the Freedom Theater, modeled on the support groups for SNCC. They held a fundraiser 
at the West Village flat of Romilly's friend Kathleen Chalfont, a well-known New York actress. Giuliano talked about his mother's theater and about his own efforts to rebuild a shattered community through art. His, quote, most effective fundraising tool, Chalfont said, was to offer a non-violent way of opposing the occupation. James Nicola and Linda Chapman, the heads of the New York Theater Workshop, were excited by Giuliano and became sponsors of the Freedom Theater. Nicola was impressed that, quote, Giuliano's definition of freedom was much bigger than freedom from occupation, embracing women's liberation, freedom from religious oppression, personal and sexual freedom. Everyone who met Giuliano in New York was beguiled. Danny Glover, Tony Kushner, the philanthropist and writer Gene Stein. Giuliano Schnabel cast him as a sheikh in Miral, Giuliano's last performance on film. Eve Ensler invited him to stage the vagina monologues in Janine. In a city of hyphenated identities, his mixed identity made him all the more attractive and more trustworthy. The theater became a popular cause for celebrities on the left. Vanessa Redgrave, Maya Angelou, the film producer James Seamus, Judith Butler, Slavo Zizek, Noam Chomsky, and Elias Khoury. Giuliano urged supporters from the West to come to Janine. Romilly often stayed with him in his home in the camp. One night, Israeli tanks rolled up at three in the morning and ordered everyone out of their houses. Giuliano came downstairs in his boxer shorts and said, We're not going out. They know that I'm here, and they know that I have foreign visitors. He was very reassuring. We always felt safe. Giuliano introduced her to Zubaydi. At the time, he was a wanted man and still lived underground. In the early days of the theater, he kept a low profile. The presence of a quote-unquote terrorist might discourage potential donors, Nyman told me. But he provided evidence of the theater's connection to the resistance, and some guests became enamored of him. The L.A. philanthropist Charles Annenberg, charmed by Zubaydi, wrote the Freedom Theater a $200,000 check and made a rapturous documentary about his new friend, Nobody is Born a Terrorist. It was an absolutely terrible film, Nyman says, but he gave us money and became a friend. He was one of several wealthy American Jews supporting the theater. For Arabs, Nyman says, Giuliano was too Jewish. In July 2007, Zubaydi came out of the shadows. As part of an agreement between the PA and Israel, he promised not to engage in armed resistance in return for having his name removed from Israel's wanted list. Giuliano saluted his decision. Zubaydi, he said, quote, left the armed resistance after being inspired by the theater, deciding that the only way forward was to join the cultural struggle against the Israeli occupation. In fact, Zubaydi had little choice. He was one of 178 Fatah militiamen who accepted the amnesty. He could hardly defy the Fatah leadership. It was part of a series of political developments that transformed Jenin's political landscape. The PA, which had lost control of Jenin after the 2002 invasion, stepped up its efforts to impose itself on the camp and to take over, quote-unquote, security responsibilities from Israel. In 2008, Hundreds of PA security officers, funded by the U.S. and trained in Jordan, entered Janine, rounding up militants. The Janine development plan was sweetened with economic and agrarian assistance and eased security restrictions for local merchants. Before long, the quote-unquote reformed security services in Janine were fighting each other over territory and patronage. Zubaydi was now free to sleep at home for the first time in five years, though he wasn't allowed to leave Janine. 
But signing the amnesty did little to enhance his reputation inside the camp. Now that the Israelis were no longer giving him chase, his talent for survival counted against him. In Janine, you're not innocent until you're dead, one man told me. Perhaps, some whispered, Zubedi had survived because the Israelis wanted him alive. Perhaps he'd been an informer all along. There had always been questions about his courage during the Battle of Janine. Some of his critics cited a scene in Arna's children as evidence. His predecessor as leader of the Al-Aqsa Brigades, Al-Asaba, who surrendered a week until into the 2002 invasion, accuses Zubedi of hiding with his group rather than continuing the fight. At least I didn't surrender, Zubedi replies, declaring that he would rather die than surrender. If you wanted to die, why didn't you shoot the soldiers? Saba fires back. You pretended to be dead. Ferocious recriminations about his acceptance of the amnesty came from Tali Fahima, an Israeli radical who had converted to Islam and spent nearly three years in prison for visiting Zubedi and Janine, and the attacks from Hamas, which had not ended its armed resistance and saw the amnesty as a betrayal, were more damaging still. Even Gamal Abdel Nasser, Zubedi said, admitted his defeat, so why not me? And he continued to attack the PA. They are whores. Our leadership is garbage. But there was no denying that the amnesty had damaged his heroic image. His biggest defender was Giuliano, and he drew closer to him, even as his friends in the Al-Aqsa Brigades warned him not to be, quote, Giuliano's man. Don't ask me to hold a guitar against an M-16, a former Fatah activist in Janine told me when I asked him what he thought of the theater. The theater was connected to influential people far outside Janine, and Zubedi had always fancied being on a wider stage. Zachariah is like Giuliano, Abed Cusini, a journalist in Nablus, told me. He used Giuliano as much as Giuliano used him. Giuliano gave him a big name, and he wanted to be a leader in front of the world. Not that he had much to do with the theater's programming. Let's face it, Nyman said. He's not a culture person. Not long after he was amnestied, Zubedi built a stone and marble mansion in Janine City with a view of the camp. It was in a neighborhood called the Mountain of Thieves. Many of the residents are PA officials. No one could explain how Zubedi was able to build his mansion on his wages from the Ministry of Prisoner Affairs. The PA suspected that, like many former militants, Zubedi was selling guns. During the Second Intifada, Janine had become an arms warehouse, and no one had better access to it than Zubedi. He is believed to have invested his profits in real estate in Janine and Nablus. He divided his house into flats and became a landlord for a number of employees of the theater, including Giuliano and Al Rey. It was safer for them in the hills. In the spring of 2009, the theater staged Animal Farm, and Giuliano realized he had enemies, not just critics, in the camp. The production was designed to shock. Actors appeared on stage dressed as pigs, violating Islamic taboo. In the last scene, army officers speaking Hebrew came to trade with the pigs, a dagger aimed at the Palestinian Authority. One night, someone tried to set the theater on fire. Later the same evening, another Western-supported cultural organization in the camp, the Al-Kamanjati Music Theater, was burned to the ground. Soon, there were anonymous leaflets denouncing the theater as a plot by Jews and foreigners to, quote, denigrate the memory of our martyrs. Giuliano responded by taking his case to the community. He organized public meetings. He spoke to the local imams. 
We faced our critics, Al Reyes said. We invited them to the theater and explained what we were doing. The attention the theater was generating abroad made its work that much more difficult. The PA felt snubbed when in 2009, David Miliband came to the theater without consulting them. A perception arose that the theater was rich, though its operating annual budget never exceeded $450,000, modest for an organization of its size. Giuliano had never handed out money, but he had gone out of his way to help people in the camp. According to Jamal Zubedi, Zakaria's uncle, Giuliano's reputation as a rainmaker created problems when he turned down people's requests. So long as people thought he was supporting them, they saw him as a Palestinian. If they stopped thinking it, he became a Jew. The problem wasn't corruption, Nyman says, but its absence. After Oslo, the whole NGO business became extremely corrupt and basically meant lining your pockets and lining the pockets of your friends. The Freedom Theater wasn't like that. We were approached directly by Fatah officials who wanted a slice of the cake, but Giuliano refused bribes. The theater staff believed the arson attempt was carried out by a disgruntled Fatah member, not an Islamist. Giuliano's friends in Janine told him the theater would be safer if he moved it from the camp to the city. The German-sponsored Cinema Janine was there, and though it had had its problems, they hardly compared with the theaters. With Zubedi acting as his frontman, as an Israeli, Giuliano couldn't purchase land. Giuliano bought an empty lot in the city and began to build what he hoped would be a national theater, one as innovative and influential as the Habima Theater in Tel Aviv. He talked about his plans as if they were a fait accompli, though he had yet to secure a permit from the city. The theater in the camp, Giuliano wrote in a letter to a group of supporters in July 2010, would be transformed into, quote, an interactive TV studio which will serve all Palestinian artists from Gaza, the West Bank, East Jerusalem, Israel, and the Palestinian diaspora, without the supervision of political parties, and certainly not of Israel. The theater's work with children, the sort of unglamorous work that had won Arna so much love, began to suffer. Giuliano complained that he was tired of, quote, social work. He wanted to create real art, not plays for children. His behavior set off, quote, a huge upheaval in the theater, Romilly told me. Stanzik quit and returned to Stockholm. The friends of the theater in France withdrew their support and the Borden Janine resigned. Frustrated by the resistance to his plans, Giuliano spent more time in Haifa, where he directed a production of Ariel Dorfman's Death in the Maiden. He took his friends in the cast to see the theater in Janine. He spoke of setting up a Freedom Theater branch in Haifa and leaving the theater in Janine in the hands of local Palestinians. In Haifa, he could escape from the scrutiny of the camp and from tensions with Nyman, who was pregnant again. For now, though, he told Amr Lehel, one of the actors in Death and the Maiden, he had to go back to Janine. All my projects would be a lie otherwise. His next production with the Freedom Theater premiered in February 2011. It was an adaptation of Alice in Wonderland and told the story of a girl who refuses to marry the man her family has chosen for her. Giuliano advertised the show by putting the actress Mariam Abu Khalid, dressed as the Red Queen, on the roof of his car with a megaphone and driving her around the camp. Some men told her never to show her face in their neighborhood again. She was afraid she might be stoned. But more than 10,000 people came to see the play, many of them from the camp. There were kids in the camp who'd already seen the play who were staging demonstrations to see it again, Janine-style demonstrations, Nyman told me. 
it looked like we were becoming a big force in the community. Not everyone in the camp was pleased by Giuliano's success, and a stark reminder of his outsider status came when Janine City refused to give him a permit to build the new theater. But Giuliano didn't relent. In early March 2011, a German acting teacher at the theater, Stefan Wolf Schoenberg, proposed a production of Frank Wedekind's Spring Awakening, and Giuliano agreed. The 1906 play, a celebration of youthful sexual revolt, has been banned time and again for its treatment of homosexuality, incest, child abuse, and suicide in fin de siècle Germany. Nyman thought the idea was just crazy, but Giuliano reminded her that Wolf Schoenberg had connections to the Goethe Institute and other potential sources of funding. He didn't want to discourage him. Wolf Schoenberg, who is gay, told me he expected the actors at the theater to be, quote, as interested as we were when we were young, puberty, growing up, being in opposition towards parents and society. But it turned out to be harder than he'd thought when rehearsals began on 14 March. Some actors pulled out and talked about the play in the camp. There was also opposition from members of the local board. Lehel warned Giuliano that he would be, quote, committing suicide if he went ahead with it. But Giuliano replied that, quote, putting on this play in Janine would be a revolution. He had second thoughts, however, when an anonymous leaflet appeared denouncing him as a, quote, communist, atheist, and a Jew. If the theater didn't stop the production, it said, quote, we will be forced to speak in bullets. On 28 March, Giuliano, who was in Ramallah directing a production of Ionesco's The Chairs, canceled Spring Awakening. A week later, he returned to Janine, where his killer was waiting for him. Inside the theater, Giuliano was warned by his colleagues and students, but in the camp, people were silent. The streets weren't flooded with people holding up his picture or waving Palestinian flags, as they usually are when a martyr dies. When a group from the theater went to the city to light candles in his memory, people asked why they were crying for a Jew. The camp seemed to be in a hurry to forget him. In Haifa, he was given a martyr's funeral. The service was mostly in Arabic. The only flags on display were Palestinian, and speaker after speaker, including Zubaydi, who addressed the crowd via mobile phone, praised him as a Palestinian hero. The investigation of Giuliano's murder has been fruitless. It wasn't clear who was responsible for investigating the murder of an Israeli citizen from a mixed Arab-Jewish background living as a Palestinian in Janine. Although they had collected all the evidence at the crime scene, the Israelis told Abir Bakr, Nyman's lawyer, that pursuing the case would be difficult because the murder took place under Palestinian sovereignty. Janine is in Area A, formerly under the jurisdiction of the PA. Suddenly, the Palestinians have a state, she said. In May 2013, she received a letter from the authorities. Unfortunately, there is no development in this case that can help us bring people to justice. The lack of progress has raised suspicions of a cover-up by Israel, but Bakr is skeptical. The problem, she said, is indifference. Giuliano isn't a settler with political power. Deep inside, they don't think he was killed because he was a Jew. The PA has been no more eager to find the killer. Shortly after the murder, it arrested a man with ties to Hamas, but he was soon released. Palestinian security conducted a preliminary investigation and apparently concluded that the murder involved issues of money and power in the theater, but it made no further arrests. Bakker speculated that the PA has shied away from the case because of, quote, Fatah issues, 
or problems in Janine over weapons. The PA's impotence has left Bakr, a Palestinian citizen of Israel and a human rights lawyer, in the awkward position of, quote, begging the Israelis to indict a Palestinian. Quote, we don't care if the suspect is tried in Israel or the occupied territory, she said. He's a murderer, and who said trials are any fairer under the Palestinian Authority? But we do want the suspect to be interrogated fairly, not placed in a shabak cell and tortured. It's what Juliana would want. What am I supposed to do? Ask the Israelis to invade Janine. The Israelis have been much more active in Janine since the murder. The Freedom Theater has been a frequent target of military raids in the past two years. Most of the Palestinian members of the, the of the theater staff and many of, it, of the actors have been taken in for questioning, some for a few hours, others for weeks. Rami Huayel, a shy young actor, was arrested at a checkpoint outside Ramallah. He spent 31 days in prison. In June 2012, Al-Ray was woken up at 3.30 a.m. by Israeli soldiers at the house he shared with Zubaydi and taken to a nearby detention center. He was interrogated for 48 hours, tied to a chair, and spent 40 days in prison. His interrogators accused him of plotting Giuliano's murder with Zubaydi. When he emerged from prison, people in Janine were friendlier. The ordeal had gained Al-Ray, who grew up in a camp outside Hebron and was always viewed with suspicion in Janine, a bit of street credibility. Zubaydi was never taken in for questioning by the Shabak. It was a strange omission. Zubaydi was Giuliano's guardian angel and no one had grieved his death more openly. A year after the murder, at the 10th anniversary of the invasion of the Janine camp, he tried to put up a poster of Giuliano beside the posters of the fighters who died fighting the Israeli army. When other former fighters took down the poster, he flew into a rage. Today, some people think this was a st carefully staged performance. Everyone said that Zubaydi was the eyes and ears of the camp, so Giuliano's friends expected him to live up to his promise and find the killer. But he very soon lost interest in the case, or so it seemed. When asked about it, he said it was in the hands of the authorities. In Ramallah, ex-comrades of Zubaydi told Tali Fahima that he was behind the murder. Giuliano, they claimed, had discovered that Zubaydi had been diverting money for the theater in the city to his own real estate investments. The Shabak wasn't lifting a finger because Zubaydi had always been a useful source of information about the camp. Many of Giuliano's friends in Israel, both Jews and Arabs, have come to believe that Zubaydi knows more than he's letting on. Some, or included, believe he conspired in his best friend's assassination. She also claims Giuliano was carrying a suitcase filled with cash that he'd taken out of his safe in Haifa two weeks earlier, but no suitcase has been discovered. Others suggest that the killing may have been a message to Zubaydi that he, quote, no longer controlled the camp, which would explain why he expressed such guilt after the murder. But Zubaydi has kept his silence and discouraged others from probing. When he heard that Orr was making inquiries about him in Ramallah, he warned her not to speak about him behind his back. Zubaydi has spent most of the past year as a prisoner of the Palestinian Authority. His troubles began on 28 December 2011, when Israel revoked his pardon for unstated reasons and the PA recommended that he turn himself in in order to avoid arrest or worse. He declined the advice, but in May 2012, when Kadura Musa, the Janine district governor, died of a heart attack after gunmen opened fire on his home, the PA put him in jail. One of the guns allegedly used in the raid was found in Zubaydi's home, though he maintains his innocence. 
He went on a hunger strike, supported by a petition drafted by the theater and its friends in the West. He was released in October 2012, and early this year returned to PA custody, saying he would otherwise risk assassination by Israel. Few I spoke to in Palestine took this claim seriously. If Israel truly wanted him, it would have no difficulty reaching him where he is, I was told. He's in a facility outside Ramallah, too comfortable to be called a prison, with access to email, Facebook, and his mobile phone. He receives visitors and is in regular contact with his colleagues at the theater. No one there believes that Zubaydi could have been involved in Giuliano's murder. Under PA custody, with his amnesty revoked, he is still an asset to them. When I spoke to him by phone, he claimed the Shabak had hired a local hitman to kill Giuliano because of the growing success of, quote, cultural resistance. It's a view you often hear inside the theater, but almost never outside it, certainly not in the camp. The rumor in the camp is that Zubaydi supports the theater because it has supported him with a salary and other unnamed benefits. When I mentioned this to him, he said I must have been talking to people in the PA. I hadn't. He praised Giuliano for giving, quote, an image of the Palestinian fighter as a human being, not a terrorist, and said, the seeds that Giuliano planted here are growing. The theater is indeed flourishing. The miracle of the Freedom Theater is that it continues to exist, Kathleen Chalfant told me. But one could also argue that the theater has benefited from Giuliano's absence. Under Giuliano, it was wild, volatile, and inspired. It has become calm, measured, and diligent under Stanzik, who returned from Stockholm the day after Giuliano was killed and resumed his role as general manager. The theater has raised its international profile, sending productions on tour in Europe and the US. It has also expanded its activities throughout the West Bank. Although Israel has continued to harass it, the anonymous threats have subsided a modus vivendi has been established with the camp, and an eerie sort of normality has set in. For Giuliano's old students, this shift in direction feels like a betrayal of their hero. One day a group of them were grumbling about the theater in the courtyard. It was less provocative, less radical, less ambitious, they said. There were hardly any girls on stage. But the theater couldn't be blamed if parents had taken their daughters out after Giuliano was killed. And under Stanzik's leadership, the entire enterprise has acquired something Giuliano lacked, something he fought against all his life, a sense of limits. Most of the photographs of Giuliano in the theater's offices have now been taken down. But Nabil al Rey told me he can't go to work without thinking of him. The theater remains a, quote, haunted space, his wife said. Some of Giuliano's friends in Haifa haven't visited the theater since the murder, they don't feel welcome in the camp. Until the killer is found, Mishmish Orr said, the theater will be, quote, nothing but a crime scene. Jenny Nyman used to feel this way, too. She was angry at the theater for continuing its work in a, quote, tamer way. Jewel liked to say it's better to die on your feet than live on your knees. I thought the theater was just going down on its knees, like it's okay to shoot me if you think I say the wrong thing. But a few months ago, she went back to the theater. What struck her most was how quiet it seemed without Giuliano. Thanks for listening. For more, go to lrb.co.uk.